Good morning. A football player fights for his life. A potential explosion between Israel and Palestinians over a walk through a holy site. Ukraine and the peace movement. Chaos in Congress and Proud Boys get a free ride. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Wednesday morning, January 4th, 2023. Buffalo Bill defensive back Damar Hamlin was in critical condition Tuesday. He suffered cardiac arrest during a primetime NFL game. Yet more proof, American football is a dangerous game, even as the nation's most popular sport. Millions of fans watched as a 24-year-old collapsed in the first quarter of the match. It was a routine tackle during a key game, forcing suspension of the game with the lucrative playoffs looming. Medical workers worked to restart his heart as he lay motionless. Players were in tears and the stadium went silent. His heartbeat was restored and he was taken off the field in an ambulance. The contest between the Bills and the Bengals was held in Ohio. Today, Governor Mike DeWine called for a moment of silence as he started a news conference. Uh, before we get started, I'd like to have uh, a moment of silence and maybe silent prayer for Buffalo Bills, uh, DeMar Hamlin. Uh, if we could just have a moment of silence, please. A spokesperson says the family remains hopeful. His uncle says they're trying to get him breathing on his own. The NFL earns $20 billion a year, but the sport exposes players to serious injury. Millions of dollars have been donated to a fundraiser for Hamlin. We'll return to national news later in the podcast. From Jerusalem, Arab countries, including Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Jordan, have joined Palestinians condemning a far-right Israeli minister's walk through the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. Israel's national security minister, that's the head of the police, Itamar Ben-Gavir, has long called for opening the site to Jews who are prohibited from praying there by leading rabbis. Although radical Israeli settlers broke that agreement by reading from the Torah in April 2021, Ben Gavir says the Temple Mount, as it's known to Jews, should be open to all. The Temple Mount is the most important place for the people of Israel. In the government of which I am a member, there won't be racist discrimination, and Jews will visit the Temple Mount. We make it clear to Hamas: we don't give in, we don't surrender, we don't blink. Israel's National Security Minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir. Palestinians view Ben-Gavir's 13-minute walkthrough as a dangerous provocation and a potential opening for Israel to take complete control. The religious sites are nominally under control of Jordan, who joined Palestinians in calling the intrusion an unprecedented provocation. The Palestinian Prime Minister is Mohammed Shatayi. This is a dangerous provocation action for the feelings of our nation, and that will increase the tension and will make us close to serious violence on the ground, and the occupation will be totally responsible for that. Palestinian Prime Minister Mohammed Shatayi. Jordan, Egypt, and the UAE, which have peace treaties with Israel, have condemned what they called Ben Gavir's storming of Al-Aqsa. Amman summoned the Israeli ambassador and said the visit had violated international law and the historic and legal status quo in Jerusalem. Hamas, the government in Gaza, says it could lead to an explosion in the region. The storming of Al-Aqsa Mosque by the Israeli minister Ben Gvir this morning is a dangerous challenge to the feelings of the Palestinian people. And we call on all our people to confront these raids that aim to turn the shrine into a Jewish temple. A U.S. spokesperson says the United States stands firmly for preservation of the status quo with respect to the holy sites in Jerusalem. Al-Aqsa Mosque 
The third holiest site in Islam stands in a place some Jews revere as the site of the ancient Jewish temple, burned by the Romans 2,000 years ago. A journalist with extensive experience in the region is Richard Silverstein. This morning, uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir, who's the new public security minister controlling the Israeli police, decided that he was going to visit what Israelis call the Temple Mount and what Muslims call Haram al-Sharif. This is considered by Muslims as a desecration because Ben-Gavir has said in the past that he wants to build a third temple there. There have been two previous temples going back to ancient times, and he wants to build a third, and in order to do that, he would have to destroy Haram al-Sharif. So Muslims are obviously very, very sensitive about this. Even though uh, Ben-Gvir made a 13-minute visit at 7 a.m. in the morning and there was hardly anybody there, that's a time he deliberately chose, obviously. It was symbolic, and it was a finger, a poking a finger in the eye of Palestinian Muslims and the world's Muslims. And the reaction has been universal condemnation, even from countries like the United Arab Emirates, which are signatories of the Abraham Accords. UAE actually has called for a United Nations meeting of the Security Council to condemn this. Even Israel's friends in the Arab world are very, very upset about this. Basically, the King of Jordan has said, we're prepared to go to war if uh, we have to over this sort of issue. Is this one person's idea of a statement who happens to be ultra-conservative, or do you think he had the approval of the prime minister? I won't want to call it a formal policy of the government. The election that brought Ben Gavir and his party into power and gave him an enormous amount of power in the government, a number of senior ministerial portfolios, including the one he has. This is definitely the policy of the government. Ben Gavir was elected on this policy of maximum incitement against the Palestinians. He's been this sort of figure for decades. The voters who voted for his party want him to do these sorts of things. And Netanyahu, even though nominally he's the prime minister, he has no control over Ben Gavir. He basically told him, if you go to Haram al-Sharif, I'm not going to be able to stop you. Ariel Sharon did this some years ago. Didn't it start the intifada at the time? It started the second intifada, which resulted in thousands of Israeli and Palestinian lives being lost. It very well could happen again. Well, less than a year ago, or a little over a year ago, we had actually a war between Israel and, and, and Gaza over similar kinds of assaults against the sacredness of the Muslim holy sites. So we have to stay tuned about what the outcome of this is, because there will be a Palestinian response, and it will not be pretty. Does this make Ben Gavir a terrorist? I mean, he... That's exactly right. He's a disciple of Mayor Kahana. His party, Kach, which was outlawed as a terrorist group, terrorist party by Israel and the United States. I call him a Judeo-terrorist because I don't like to use the term Jewish, connected with people like him. He has supported terror attacks against Palestinians. He has directed terrorist attacks against Palestinians. He has a number of followers who are willing to do that for him. He is definitely a leading terrorist, Judeo-terrorist, in Israeli terms. Yet he's not on a, uh, a don't-fly list of any sort. He can come to America anytime he feels like. This is a really atrocious thing about U.S. policy. I've been advocating for months that the U.S. 
declare him persona non grata. They shouldn't be admitted to the United States. They shouldn't meet with any U.S. personnel in Israel, in the embassy. Instead, the U.S. today has merely expressed concern about what he did. There needs to be a much more active an intense response by the U.S. to this, and instead they sit back and they use uh, sort of pablum-type responses to what is really a heinous act by Ben Gavir and tolerated by um, the leader of the Israeli government, Netanyahu. Activist attorney Stanley Cohen once represented Hamas and other Palestinian leaders. He linked Ben Gavir's walk to the Boycott Divestment Sanctions, or BDS, movement to end international support for Israel. He says Ben Gavir and Israel's new hard-right government are looking for a fight. It's clear that this was not an isolated step. This was a, a provocation brought about by someone and his followers that have been convicted of terrorism, even in Israel. And you really got to go to great lengths to be convicted of terrorism if you're Jewish in Israel. This was designed to unleash the kind of intifada that they have seen before so that it could justify even greater mass reprisal, assassinations, theft of land, push the annexation bill, push the Knesset well beyond the fascist legislative body it is now. I'm not sure if it's going to happen. You're going to see an increase in targeted resistance. You're going to see an increase in, in armed struggle. You're going to see more and more young women and men not necessarily aligned with any movement, taking their own future, their own liberty, their own family safety into their own arms. And there's going to be more resistance and more fighting and more death and destruction. Gavir, he is a member of a known terrorist organization, gets to travel anywhere he wants and uh, is uh, feeded as a government representative. As long as Israel continues to be the proxy, the dutiful proxy it's been for the United States for the last 75 years, it's got cover. There are the, the MLAT agreements between Israel and the United States, the mutual, the mutual legal assistance treatments, treaties are ignored by Israel. There are Jewish Israelis that are wanted for murder in the United States. There are Jewish Israelis that are subject to investigations. There are possibly American Israelis that are wanted in the recent, uh, that were involved in the recent assassination, the, the murder of famed Palestinian journalist Shireen and Omar Assad. Israel gets a, it gets a pass. It doesn't matter whether it's Biden, whether it's Trump, whether it's Clinton, whether it's Obama. They are dutiful proxies for the United States. The real problem that Israel has increasingly is the American Jewish community, without which they cannot survive as the entity they have for seven decades. Increasingly, young women and men of the Jewish community in the United States are rejecting Zionism for the, the European racist colonial project it is. They want nothing to do with the violation of international law and human rights violations of Israel. The notion that Southern evangelical Zionists can substitute for them is sheer folly. Israel has a problem. It's pushing the envelope. It's pushing the envelope on the ground in Palestine. It's pushing the envelope in Israel. Unfortunately, there's no resistance. The so-called Israeli left is, is, is nothing but you know, liberal Zionists, essentially, at the end of the day. And it's got problems in the United States. Is it just more of the same, or are we coming to a, a tipping point? I'm thinking in terms of the war that's going on between Ukraine and Russia and Israel's long, close association, both Ukraine and Russia, but a tendency of the U.S. to be moving towards Ukraine and Israel to be moving towards Russia. Israel moves towards the biggest fascist it can. If it, if it can garner more from Russia than it can from the United States, it'll move in that direction. It understands it's got increasing problems in the Jewish community in the United States. 
It understands that APAC and the ADL is losing the control it once had. It understands that the geopolitical horizon in the United States is completely out of control right now. Israel would lie down with any dog, any rabid dog, and I love dogs, sorry dogs. Israel would lie down with any devil in any place at any time to benefit its own Zionist narrative. Former attorney for Hamas, Stanley Cohen, he's written the article Seeking Justice in the Name of Hate in Defense of BDS at Counterpunch.org. Meanwhile, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu issued a statement late on Tuesday claiming he is committed to strictly maintaining the status quo without changes on the Temple Mount. In news of the war in Ukraine, in an admission last week, Secretary of State Antony Blinken justified chaotic withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan that led to the death of hundreds at the airport in Kabul by saying the U.S. would not have been able to aid Ukraine in its war against Russia if its forces were still in Afghanistan. When it comes to Russia's war against Ukraine, if we were still in Afghanistan, uh, it would have, I think, made much more complicated the support that we've been able to give and that others have been able to give Ukraine to resist and push back against the Russian aggression. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Meanwhile, the results of U.S. military aid were on display in eastern Ukraine over the weekend. The Russian Defense Ministry says 89 soldiers were killed in a missile strike, including the regiment's deputy commander. The attack took place after midnight on Sunday. It was one of the deadliest single losses in the war for Moscow's forces. And as the two combatants are farther apart than ever, few give hope to any near-term peace talks. In the United States, more than 1,000 faith leaders signed a petition circulated by the Fellowship of Reconciliation, the oldest peace group in the U.S., Code Pink, among others. They were calling for a Christmas truce that never occurred. Fellowship of Reconciliation Executive Director Ariel Gold. We just did a, a large effort where well over 1,000 Faith leaders came together prior to Christmas and called for a truce. We have to keep lifting up this kind of moral clarity that there must be a ceasefire and we must have negotiations to end this catastrophic, could become nuclear apocalyptic war. When we were doing the Christmas truce and it was Fellowship of Reconciliation, the National Council of Elders and Code Pink, we knew our odds of accomplishing an actual truce were quite low, given that um, all of these sides really are invested in fighting, and that includes the U.S. with the amount of weapons we're pouring in. But even despite not, not getting a truce, what we accomplished in that moment was some sense of hope, moral clarity, and we have to keep that type of optimism in what are very dark days right now. American forces, American military high-tech weapons are being used to kill Russians by the hundreds. Let's keep in mind our culpability as Americans. We're sending these weapons over, which are prolonging this war. We're sending a message to both Ukraine and Russia that they shouldn't negotiate, that they shouldn't seek a negotiated settlement and an immediate ceasefire. Because with our weapons, we're encouraging them to continue fighting. 
And we're doing this at the expense of our needs here at home. While we're a country that can't even give any semblance of, of health care to its population. So this isn't just a war that's going on over there. This is a war regarding our military spending here at home, regarding our priorities. And we're fueling this war. Um, so we have to be, as Americans, committed to stopping it. How do we get people there? Because there is a, this feeling that Ukraine was the aggrieved party because they got invaded in this country, right or wrong. And that's that might be changing, actually. But for now, um, there is support for this. Yes, certainly. And that can become a difficult topic for people. But at this point, how many more deaths have to take place? How many more lives have to be lost? How many more refugees have to be created? How much more do we have to risk nuclear apocalypse, which could easily happen with this? We doesn't even have to be as black and white as that. We don't have to ask so much for sides that way, but to ask for the U.S. to export negotiations, right? To export encouragement to negotiate rather than exporting a, so many weapons to encourage the continuation, so, you know, we can just think about and, and if we step back, we realize that people do support peace in Ukraine. They do support an end to this violence and this bloodshed and would support the U.S. taking leadership in bringing this to an end. So it might be that type of framing. You know, when we asked faith leaders to sign on for this Christmas truce, we thought that was going to be uh, we thought we were going to get maybe 100 faith leaders. Well, we got well over 1,000 all across different states in every state of the country because there is this appeal for peace. There is this appeal for this brutal war to come to an end. And I think that that's what we have to place in the forefront, the moral clarity that not one more Ukrainian or Russian should be killed or should become a refugee. When do we get to the point where people start laying down on the railroad? We see that there are conscientious objectors. There are tons of hundreds of thousands of, of draft-eligible men flood, fled Russia when the draft was announced. And did we encourage that? Did we help them to flee? Do we support the Ukrainian pacifist network who are refusing to fight? So I don't know that it's about us laying down on a railroad track here, but there are players in Russia and Ukraine there are people who don't want to fight. They deserve our deepest respect. We need to be lifting them up as the heroes that they are. Fellowship of Reconciliation Executive Director Ariel Gold. In Ukraine, President Volodymyr Zelensky warned of more Russian attacks by Russia using drones purchased from Iran. In more national news, Capitol Hill was the scene of chaos again on Tuesday, but the cause wasn't a Proud Boys-sponsored invasion as happened on January 6, 2021. It was the failure after three votes for the House to name its next speaker, an important job, third in line for the presidency after Vice President Kamala Harris. Held for the previous term by California Democrat Nancy Pelosi, the GOP holds a majority but couldn't muster the requisite votes, 218, to elect a presumptive Representative Kevin McCarthy, who got only 202 votes. The Democrat, the first black person to seek the post, is New York's Hakeem Jeffries. He got 212 votes. But the deal-breaker were 20 votes for a reluctant Ohio Republican, Jim Jordan, 
who went as far as to nominate his opponent, McCarthy. But the right-wing Freedom Caucus was hearing none of it, labeling McCarthy as an alligator in the swamp. They went for Jordan, depriving McCarthy of what could have been an easy victory. Florida Republican Matt Gates. Those of us who will not be voting for Kevin McCarthy today take no joy in this discomfort that this moment has brought. But if you want to drain the swamp, you cannot put the biggest alligator in charge of the exercise. I'm a Florida man and I know of what I speak. We offered Kevin McCarthy terms last evening that he rejected. So we do not want to be here at this moment. We would prefer to have a unity of purpose, but we will not continue to allow the uniparty to run this town without a fight. There's very little difference between Nancy Pelosi and her California delegation mate that seeks the gavel. Meanwhile, a beaming Representative Jeffries met with reporters afterwards to say he was on the road to becoming Speaker. House Democrats are ready to continue to build upon the incredible progress that we made on behalf of the American people in the last Congress and continue to advocate and fight for better paying jobs, lower costs, safer communities, defend democracy, fight for freedom, protect the public interests, and ensure economic opportunity in every single corner of America. We're ready, willing, and able to get to work on behalf of the American people, but we don't have a partner on the other side of the aisle. Because the Republican conference has apparently been taken over by extreme MAGA Republicans, and to the extent there are reasonable individuals on the other side of the aisle, they have no way out. It's a sad day for the institution of the House of Representatives, a sad day for democracy, and a sad day for the American people. Jeffries went on to say the GOP has a way forward if they're ready to talk to Democrats. They're going to have to figure out a way out of it if they are willing to govern in a manner that actually is designed to solve problems for working families, middle-class folks, senior citizens, veterans, young people, the poor, the sick, the afflicted, and the least, the lost, and the left behind, they will find a willing partner with us in terms of governance. But there's no evidence of that right now. Thank you. Thank you. Meanwhile, late on Tuesday, Hakeem Jeffries made another kind of history and became the first black politician to lead either party in Congress as House Minority Leader. In a sideshow at today's drama at the Capitol, George Santos, Republican representative-elect of New York, spent his first day in Congress as an outcast. He was popular with paparazzi as dozens of reporters swarmed his office. Santos is under investigation by federal and local investigators into potential crimes during his two congressional campaigns. He's been peppered with questions about his education, ties to Wall Street, and other endeavors, all revealed to be part of a character he created to run for office. He also claimed he's Jewish and descendant of Holocaust survivors, although he's Catholic. Santos was met by a protest that included a real Holocaust survivor's descendant. New York free, Santos free! New York free, Santos free! New York free, Santos free! So, 
as we stand here today watching this slow George Santos train wreck take place, we need to stand together because we do not want to be represented by a clown. You have lied about your personal work and educational experience for your own gain. You have lied about your wealth and your finances for your personal gain. And perhaps most vile of all, you lied about the Holocaust in a mass shooting for your own personal gain. I listened in horror as I learned that George Santos lied about being the child of a Holocaust survivor and being Jewish. Mr. Santos, lies are insulting and demeaning to every child of a Holocaust survivor. How do I know? Because I am a child of a Holocaust survivor. Democrats are calling for Santos to give up his seat, and Republicans have begun to question his conduct. And finally, videos showing Proud Boys being escorted by the NYPD and then allowed to enter a subway without paying the fare has gone viral and watched millions of times. Proud Boys don't have to pay, pay for the We're fare? We're special, thank you. You don't have to pay for the fare. Appreciate wow. it from your tax. Proud Boys don't have to pay for the fare. Oh, thank you. That thank is you. insane. Proud Boys don't have to pay for the fare. $3. Sorry, I just need you to go out. Oh, I have to pay for the fare, but they don't? Right. Is that the situation you're saying? That's correct. The user who posted the video, Brenda Lip, tweeted the group had come from the Drag Story Hour at the Jackson Heights Public Library, where drag artist storytellers use what they call the art of drag to read to kids. The NYPD says they weren't there to help the Proud Boys, a neo-fascist group whose leaders were sentenced to long jail terms for participating in the January 6th Capitol invasion. But the cops say they wanted to limit the potential for violence between the group and counter-protesters. And that's the news for Wednesday morning, January 4th, 2023. The news can be heard at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening, and have a great new year.